This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast with Rodders. Stand and Deliver! Hello and welcome to the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast with me, Rodders. We're back. Uh, did, did you miss me? Uh, I am sorry for the ridiculously long absence. You probably just assumed I'd forgotten my password or, or something. But no, I'll tell you the whole tragic tale and where I've been and what I've been up to uh, in, in a moment. Big welcome to you if you've never listened to this podcast before. Um, my name is Rodders. I'm a stand-up comedian, but also I'm a promoter. I run the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club up above Smoking Billies, uh, right in the centre of Reading. And this is the podcast where I chat to some of the acts who I've had the pleasure of hosting at my comedy night. My guest today is Russell Hicks. He's, I think, one of the most prolific and entertaining improv comedians, I'm going to call him. You could watch him every night of the week and I very much doubt I would put money on the fact that I don't think you'd hear him repeat a joke he improvises he does crowd work and he's just this once he builds up momentum he's just this amazing whirlwind of energy riffing full jokes uh, which would take most comedians months to even write I mean it is extraordinary to to watch him work uh, he's sort of a, a master of mayhem he generates such an air of havoc and energy in a room uh, you wonder how he's going to put a lid on or finish on time uh, we, we talk about him playing because uh, I first became aware of him when I saw him win the gong show at the comedy store that's when audience members if they don't like you can hold up a card and gong you off and the idea is to it's basically like the buzzers on Britain's Got Talent uh, the um uh, the aim is just to survive but he not only survived but he won it in spectacular fashion on what must have been one of the most hostile nights they've ever had at the comedy store it's absolutely unbelievable he also talks about how to win comedy competitions also he, t- he talks about how he does he, he's very much a person who he's, he's quite extreme in the way he just goes this is right this is wrong this is what I want so I'm going to do it he, he got fed up of his job so got up, quit, and moved to Hollywood. Uh, absolutely extraordinary. And he has uh, a lot of opinions on how fame should never really be your aim. He talks about the fame monster, so that's very interesting. So he's quite purist uh, about comedy, which is uh, it's very interesting. And the I think the most unusual thing about Russell Hicks, he just has never been on social media. He's never been on it long enough even to quit. He's aware of it. Uh, he has a phone. He has the internet. He's very easy to email. <laughs> but he isn't, he's not on Facebook, which I find fascinating nowadays because most of my, a lot of my gig bookings come via Facebook. A lot of, a lot of the, like I promote this podcast via Facebook. So it's very interesting to see how he's still managing to be a full-time professional comic with virtually zero presence on the internet he has a website and he has a mailing list like it's the 90s and he's still a full-time professional comic Um, I think it might be the privilege of an act who started or became professional before social media really exploded I think if he was starting today he would struggle Uh, but he disagrees with me on that so it's quite interesting to hear that Uh, but before we get on to our interview with Russell Hicks where have I been where's my website been um in short, the Russians hacked it. I, I'm, I'm not even kidding here. I, well, I say the Russians. Somebody who uses the Cyrillic alphabet. So, so I, I'm, I'm just assuming here. Um, I came to check on my website to see if it was all there. And uh, someone had put up their own splash screen in the Cyrillic alphabet. And it looked like it was flogging mobile phones. Somebody hacked my website, uh, which is very distressing. Um, and... I went to my host, uh, Bluehost at the time, and uh, they said, oh, well, you should have taken an off-site backup. And I was like, well, isn't that your job? What, what, what am I paying you a monthly amount of money for? Um, and uh, they, they very, very kindly said, oh, well, we'll get out. Your, we can uh, have our partner's site lock clean it for you if you give us around £400. 
Oh, they're very kind of you. But it's just absolutely ludicrous. So I, I had a big row with them. I, I, I blasted them on social media, which is something Russell Hicks wouldn't be able to do, which achieved absolutely nothing. All I got was lots of other internet uh, servers, uh, internet hosts coming out of the woodwork, circling around me like vultures and offering me their services. Like, oh, well, we'll, we'll clean your site for 100 quid. I was like, look, just, just leave me alone. I'm in mourning for the loss of my website. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, it's all legal. It's all watertight. Bluehost's T and T's and C's are there. And uh, so, uh, you know, legally they're in the right. Uh, and I should have backed up my own site, apparently. Uh, so the moral is, don't use them. Use someone better. I'm now with Torpix hosting. T-O-R-P-I-X. So far, amazing. So that they've responded when things haven't worked and uh, or rather when I haven't known how to do things that they've been very helpful and so that this is that's where the podcast has been. And this happened, this website hacking thing, it happened at the worst possible time. It happened during May and during May I was called for jury service. I was stuck in a courtroom for a whole month being a jury member on a murder trial. Uh, there's only so much I want to say about it, and there's only so much I can say about it. Uh, but it was it was very distressing. Um, it kind of it affected me quite terribly. Um, it, it's just it's a weird weird situation to be in because anyone could be picked for jury service. You could listening right now. You could be picked tomorrow if you're over the eighteen, and uh, um, you just get a letter. So you're just plucked from your everyday existence thrown into a court and the weirdest thing is when you arrive there there's this big waiting room that's like a very big doctor's waiting room and people are just sitting around waiting to be called and to find out what case they're going to be sitting on and uh, it's the weirdest thing it's like a doctor's waiting room but no one's ill and there's no doctors you have like a group of builders playing connect four there's like a a 40 year old english teacher sitting there on her own reading where's wally and everyone's just like it's like hanging around in purgatory it's very very bizarre and you're thrown together with a bunch of strangers and then you have to decide the fate of another human being it's it's absolutely bizarre it's kind of like being on a, a rather perverse reality TV show, uh, one of the most unsettling experiences of my life. Uh, and to be honest, like it's it's weird. It's it, it's like the courtroom doesn't doesn't leave you. You you can leave the courtroom, but it doesn't leave you. There's this constant stress and pressure on you. And obviously, it's it's an ongoing trial, so you can't even you can't talk about it. Uh, so there's no there's no real release. You, it's not like you can go home. Oh, I had a really hard day at the office. You can't you can't say anything about it. So there's no release from it. So it's absolutely draining. And weirdly enough, I I was still booked to perform stand up in the evening, and I didn't know if the pressure of that would would affect me mentally even worse because it was starting to do funny things to me in the end um, during jury service. I was. I don't have depression, but I was getting symptoms of, like I was feeling listless, I was just sleeping for far longer than I normally would, I wouldn't be able to get out of bed on the weekends, um, and it, it was just really stressing me out, just in the, the the strangeness and the pressure of it. So I didn't know if stand-up, it was either going to be the exactly the wrong thing or exactly the right thing to do. Luckily, it was the right thing to do, and as soon as I got on stage and was performing gigs of the evenings, uh, it would all just kind of melt away, and while I was on stage... I'd feel fine. I'd feel normal again. Uh, so I think comedy has kind of kept me sane, uh, which is which is worrying. If something as insane as stand-up comedy was keeping me sane, uh, then it just shows you what a bizarre situation uh, I was in. Right, so let's now hear from our guest recorded back in March in Banbury when we were taking part in the world's longest comedy show record attempt. And in fact, this was recorded in a hotel room in Banbury, not just any hotel, a haunted hotel, apparently. So here is Russell Hicks. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast. The video I saw of you was when you were you took on this really, really horrible gong show. I think it might be in the comedy store. And the crowd, I think, had been just binning everyone straight away yeah. and you just absolutely attacked them and you and it seemed like well there's no easy way to say it i smashed it mm, yeah. beyond all belief i mean yeah no i i just remember that night like uh they 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 were it was like i just got to the country and i remember i went to that show and that show is like a beast unlike any other i mean the audience goes in there excited to make people hurt and fail this is the biggest congregation of fucking savages I have ever seen in my life. 
This show is incredible. Do you understand that American stereotype of English people is completely false? Everybody in America does the same impression of an English person, that posh sort of thing. Really, dude? Bullshit. Go to the comedy store on a Monday night. Check that shit out. Animals. And I wasn't even actually on the bill. I had done a thing where if you show up um, and you just uh, – you're like a wild card. I was like the – not picked out of the audience, but I just – they said hang around long enough and if we have time, we'll throw you on. So I didn't know I was going on until like right at the end. And um, But I just remember thinking I, I, my plan was to go up and like tell them off in a funny – like bomb really hard but on my terms. And then I remember I just started and they started laughing and then I just kind of wrote it and that was it. Because yeah, it's like you took all their aggression and then threw it back at them, but you kept enough composure so you weren't flipping out. Just, and I think that's what kind of made them think, well, maybe he knows what he's doing. And uh, Yeah, I don't know, man. I just commented on the absurdity of it. Like, if I'm in a room like that, I can't experience that absurdity without calling attention to it. So I'm sitting in a room, staring on all sides at people going like gladiatorially like crazy like it was a coliseum like the audience i just remember they had pints in their hands and i was already nervous and they're just shouting i was already nervous because i had just moved to the country and then i'm seeing these open micers go up one after another and just getting destroyed by this audience you know a couple would make it through and then uh i just i uh, after 29 people i just started to get really angry at the audience so I thought, well, they're not going to get out of here without – like they're not – like my attitude is like, well, you're not going to leave having had a good time doing this. Now you're going to suffer. <laughs> it's a weird concept, the gong show. The thing that really puts me off, off doing them, and maybe I should just get up and do more of them. I've, I've done the odd few. But it's, it's not so much the thought of failing, but it's a thought I could pay £20 to get on a train and only do a two-minute spot. Like, mm. it's, it's bad enough travelling for five spots. It was brutal. I kind of hated myself that I even had to do it, but I had to do it. I had to do it in a spiritual way. For some reason, when there's like a gig like that that's so hard, I have, feel like I have to do it. But that was a very – that was an interesting thing because after I won that, I said, that's the last time I'm going to make myself do something just because I was in a – I was in a real uh, kind of a – not a rut, but like – if I heard a room was bad, I would go do it. And 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 after a while, and then there was other people that were a little more career-minded who would never do it. They'd be like, what's the point of doing that room? I mean, there's no industry there. There's nothing to help my career. Why would I do that room? So they never did those rooms. Whereas I was always like, I kind of felt like you had to walk through a dark alley in stand-up and street fight and become strong before you were worth anything. So... After a while, though, I thought, I'm okay, enough. I've been going like five years. I don't need to keep going to rooms just because they're garbage. So after that, I said, that's it. And then I was like, I'm going to try to do what those other guys were doing. Like, I'm going to go to nice clubs and hang out and try to maybe meet an agent or something. And then I, I was ended. I did that. And that's, that's what made me stay over here. I guess the old idiom, well, if it doesn't kill you, it does kind of make you stronger. Because I remember my least favorite gig ever, I was booed off by 112 drunks. And that was awful. It was absolutely crippling. Like, it was the first real horrible, horrible death I'd had. Yeah. I mean, I had others, but that was, like, it was frightening. Like, it was the first time I'd actually yeah. been worried for my safety. But the next night I had a pub where there were five drunks. And because I'd, I thought, fair enough, 112 drunks can have me, yeah. I'm not going to let five have me. So in that way, it, it did, me, did me good. But yeah. there's only so many horrible gigs one can take, surely. Well, I guess, like... If you die like that, the thing that I always think, and maybe this had a lot of impact on me when I was a kid, but, like, I remember you'd, I can't remember, it was, like, action, you'd watch, like, these American action movies, and there might be a scene in the end where, like, one of the heroes die, like, he knows he's gonna die, and then there's, like, that noble Hollywood thing where he accepts it, and instead of kind of crying about it, he takes a cigarette out, puts it in his mouth lights it up and then walks into the room and makes some witty quip and the whole building blows up and he died like cool. I think if you're getting booed by like 112 people, there comes a moment where you, rather than just let it completely destroy you, you got to put that cigarette in your mouth and go, right then. I guess if you look at it from an outsider's perspective, it, it is ludicrous and I guess that's the way to do it. Just find it 
amusing on one level that you've suddenly have you managed to enrage this many people you're, yeah. not, you're not even a politician yeah like, and I, you're I, just telling jokes and you've really upset them i think that like by having that awareness you can kind of bring the room back too like i've done that before where they're all hating me so much and i just kind of like stop and just express to them how funny this is what i'm experiencing right now you know i say guys put it in my perspective i mean this is pretty when's when when have any of you ever had this experience you gotta dig it from where i'm standing i'm in a room in another country at a rugby club, and you're all booing me. I mean, this is fantastic. Obviously, not being having your experience, when I'm faced with a tough room, I'm probably a lot more scared than you. But at the same time, it's, there's something really, really liberating about the deck being stacked against you. Because if you're the underdog and you lose, then you're going to lose anyway. But if you turn it around, then that's that's amazing. I was really I went on at uh, two a.m. And I thought they were going to be, like, the other night, uh, Friday morning, I went on for the, this world's longest comedy show ever. And I was really, really, I thought it was going to be terrible. And I thought, well, I'll just chuck myself at it. Because I couldn't lose, because I felt the odds were so snapped against me that it didn't matter what I'd do, so I might as well just go for it kind of thing. Do you yeah. feel like that when you when you see just a, a, a sea of, I don't know, a tough room? Yeah, like, well, because I remember, like, Phil Kay told me, he said, like, any time it's not a gig, he likes better. You know, like, like the more it becomes like a gig, like a really formal event, the more restricted he feels because they're expecting something now. And you get a different clientele. So they've come to see comedy and they want to see it how they know it. And how they know it is generally from television. So they sit down and there's just it becomes a little more restrictive and the comedian feels a little more pressure which then makes them a little more inhibited which can then make them perform a little bit less exciting than they would whereas if you just go to a pub people are like well, I don't know man whatever the comedian feels less pressure he's less inhibited so a lot of times those gigs can be incredibly satisfying because they're like you're just you're unhinged you feel free and you feel like you can do anything you want because there's not a lot riding on it you know, if you just get out of there with all your limbs intact, you probably actually perform better. Because, like, I, I've well, I, I've done terribly in competitions because I was so worried about the outcome. Yet I've done far better in a really ramshackle pub gig. And I think if only I could get that same blasé mindset for a comp. Yeah. Uh, as long as I've warmed up and prepared for it and done gigs before, then that would be so much better than me just going. Oh, I've got to get through my five spot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what I what the, what I learned early on with that the trick is for me is I I had a room in in California that I would do that was very no pressure for me and it was still a comedy club but it was like loose and they didn't care and I would get so free there like it was a pub gig like you're talking about and when I moved to Los Angeles um, I got re- you you go to Hollywood and all of a sudden you're at like the comedy store and all those places and you start getting really inhibited and really nervous and so- for some reason you'd have to ask Darwin about this you naturally decide like your instinct is to change your act completely so you let's say you're a freewheeling guy like like I I I tend to uh, you know work in that way you go I, I suddenly felt like oh, I better do some jokes man I'm in Hollywood now like. And then you just bomb. So what the trick is, is find a really crappy room that is totally like you just feel like... Low stakes, open mic, low low pressure. right? And if you have an amazing, you know, where you're just whatever, you're you're taking risks you never take before. If you have a room that you like blow the roof off every time and because you're just so calm and you're just so everything. So when you go to a big room, just like close your eyes. I used to do this and just tell yourself, your brain, pretend you're about to do that room. Yeah, because then you'll be comfy. You'll feel comfortable. Yeah, and I mean exactly. Do exactly. Like if you go on at an open mic and start making fun of the host because you know him so well, I mean do that at the comedy club, at the most prestige, the comedy store. Because I guarantee you, if you go, it's not the room. It's your energy. If you go on, and matter of fact, you'll have even better results. If you go into the stricter the environment, especially contests. Yeah, because I feel like you're every. I think things. I feel sometimes at competition, things are set up to intimidate me. I've got to sign in at a register, and I've got to got to do this, got to do that, and it's just. Whereas at a comedy night, I'll turn up half an hour, an hour before. 
have a drink or sit around chatting and then oh someone calls my name I'll go up and do some stuff whereas like comedy it's suddenly like a comedy competition you're suddenly you're at school and they're taking their register again yeah well it's like preset tension so it's that's actually good when you realize like a comedy competition the audience may not be able to understand why but there's a tension in the room they can just tell they don't know why they're like but it's because the comedians are nervous there's high stakes and you get 10 comedians go up and they're all doing their best shit and then you're that one guy who goes on like he's not even in a contest. He didn't even care. You'll blow the roof off. Well, that's that weird contradiction about, oh, you try if you try too hard, it looks bad. But yeah. you've got to put in some effort. There's this weird fine line of got to try. Obviously, you've got to make an effort. You've got to try. But then being a try hard is, is bad. Yeah, well, you can, you can still be trying without trying. So, like... <laughs> Yeah, so it's, I mean, the the trick is to to try as hard as you can not to try, because what what you can do is trick yourself by telling yourself, okay, I'm gonna like totally relax and 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 take a chance on this, and that's still gonna be good because of X. So like, I mean, with contests, the thing with a contest is like. Winning is fine, but really, you can get a lot out of not winning. If you're funny, like I've done contests that I lost, and you get people in the audience that I still work for yeah. today. Be funny. Be totally uniquely you, funny, and it will carry you because, you know, a lot of times people go, oh, there was this promoter in the room or this TV producer. In three years, that guy doesn't even work for Channel 4 anymore. So it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Going back to what you're saying about the gong show, watching that video of the, the gong show, that looked like that's where you're happy being amongst all that chaos, mm. uh, like fighting fire with fire. But what do you, what, how do you feel when you get a polite, not aggressive, but quiet, cold audience? Weird. I did it, yeah. I did a show at the Pleasance last Edinburgh. And someone put me on the Pleasance because they had seen me at the Three Sisters at Maggie's Chamber. And I went on and um, it was cool, but it was a little stilted for me because I can do that. I mean, I guess you switch into different gears to be funny, but you have certain gears in your arsenal that you don't like, certain suits you don't want to wear. And then they all came to my show that night based on that performance. So I had all these Pleasance people in and... I think that I get weird, like, when I watched the... I was watching James Acaster's specials, and I'm like, damn, man. I, I wish I could do that. I wish I could come out and do a performance, you know? And maybe that's just me being low on what I do, but I don't do that, you know? I just come out, and it's more of a... Yeah, it's a bit of a riskier endeavor. Uh, so I think I'm just trying to figure out how to take what I do and make it into a a bigger sort of production. Because it seems like when faced with an audience that's really aggressive, you can chuck it back at them right, uh, uh, just as hard and you can kind of, there's energy in the room and you convert it and make it on your side and then, then kind of own the room. Whereas if there's no energy from the crowd in the first place, and like, I don't know where, how you inject energy into that room without just, because if you yell at them, they'll just be like, oh God, yeah. God. yeah, I don't know, it's weird, man. I mean, I want to think that I'm like, at my best when it's all good natured, like today it was like everyone was into it and improvising and it was all, they were all happy about it. But I definitely think ever since I was like a teenager there, I have a certain ability to handle direct aggression and people used to like try to piss me off because they thought it was funny, but that did piss me off that they were trying to piss me off. But I remember people around me, I'd be like, why are you guys always like, kind of poking at me and stuff because like, it's so funny when you like react and I'm like well it is annoying me though I mean my natural response is to be funny about it so I don't really like when the room is aggressive I like when it's up for you know winging it and that kind of thing but you know sometimes when they're quiet and watching that doesn't mean like today in the first like 15 minutes I thought oh man and I actually asked them I go you guys are into this right and they're like, yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. Because sometimes they're into the free nature of the show. They just might not be, like, jumping in and, like, batting it around. They're just kind of, like, watching it. You know, I feel like when you do an Edinburgh or a pleasancy type show, it's almost like they're they're watching you like you're uh, playing some sort of instrument. Like, you know what I mean? 
you're like yeah, it's there, there, there to watch clarinet them. like a pretentious uh, but that's what most comics want isn't it they just want people to, to they watch do them. but it freaks me out a little bit I'm like I need like uh, okay you want like prolonged crowd work it seems I want to like like let's go let's like whip it up a little bit which it is my job and I can whip up any audience I think when I'm doing it right I can get them going you know it just takes a level of like that must cause havoc on some bills though like if they settle the room put you on in the middle you it's like it's like winding up the the being the supply teacher winding up the kids then the teacher comes back and oh god they're all over the place does that do you get that definitely people hated it (laughs) people still hate it nobody wants to go after me not because i'm scary to follow or because i'm so good or anything like that but because most comics that some comedians don't care other comedians think that it really changes the dynamic of the room I have had to follow guys who do almost exactly like how I do it and I just do it. I don't really care. But um, I think – and I think it probably does change the dynamic of the room. I hated to admit it because in America I used to get it more than I do here. I mean I, because now you have a break. So people don't care that much. But in America, you go right before the headliner and I wasn't a headliner back then. So I would do 20, 25 minutes and I should feel some level of guilt for this. For the amount of guys that came in to just do a nice, easy weekend, they've given up all sort of artistic ambition for comedy. They just want to clock in, do a nice, easy room, get some free chicken wings. And here comes this young, snot-nosed kid doing 30 minutes of crowd work before they have to go headline. And I used to – they used to try to throw me off bills every – almost every weekend. But then the promoters were – you probably made no secret that that was your style and the promoters were putting you on the bill. So there's, it's somehow their fault, isn't it? Like- well, warnings started to be given. And warnings were given to me to maybe not do it. Of course, I would not adhere to those warnings. And uh, the guy that owned the comedy club that I played at every weekend in San Diego was so cool. He liked me a lot. So he would just let me keep doing it. <laughs> and I would say, guys, I'm, I'm, like, I'm not trying to be an asshole. I certainly wouldn't get off stage and go, hey, good luck with that. I, I it's just that was how I did stand up, man. It just it just evolved like that. But yeah, um, they would they a lot of guys would get annoyed. But there was another type of guy who didn't get annoyed, and those guys were powerful comics. Those guys would go after me. I thought I was like hot stuff, and they would uh, eviscerate me. You know, not me, but they would like personally. But they would be so good in what they did that it didn't matter what I did. And that's possible too. I guess like, that's the mark of a true headliner, isn't it? I and think so. Just... Yeah, it's just like this kid's been going three years. He's learned how to improvise. How exciting! Watch this. Boom, and they would blow me out of the water, and and I would go, "Wow!" And I really respected those guys. But then there was the guys who just wanted to clock in, and they were like, "I can't do." It. And sometimes I'd be like, "Oh, I hate to admit it, I did change the dynamic of the room because I would watch the headliner, and it would." If it always made me cringe if somebody heckled him with something that I had said. Do you know what I'm saying? Like they'd go, "Oh, you feel it's their fault." It's like when you give a child, someone at school, a nickname, and then the bullies yes. latch onto it. I think audiences are smarter than that, but then again, maybe I'm underestimating. Maybe I'm overestimating them. I think an audience knows. Like that, that that always annoys me when someone has such an opaque view of the audience's intelligence. Like, oh, they think we can just crowd work now. No, I think they know that's me. And now here comes you. And they'll give you two minutes to go, this is what I do. I tell stories. Awesome. Let's watch stories now. I personally think. But it was always weird because like I used to – basically what was happening was I moved to Hollywood and I was absolutely – I quit my job. I moved to Hollywood and quit my job, which I recommend for anybody. If you're, if you're just at the point which you like can barely make it as, – and, and people advise you against this. I heard someone on a podcast say that's the dumbest thing you could do. No, I disagree. If you're at the point that you can just barely make it, quit. Quit your job, man, and make it on like – I used to eat beans was like my diet for like a month, but I was so happy, man. And so I would just do this. I had no money, but I had my rent so low that I could make it work if I did this one club in San Diego every weekend. And I would go back to San Diego every weekend and do it. $25 a spot. I'm talking about it like it was 20 years ago. but It was like five years ago. But, but doesn't that inhibit any sort of life you could have – outside comedy or does the fact you're living in comparative squalor make you work harder uh both of those things happen so living in the squalor makes you work harder and also yes you will have no life but i might be a bit of an extremist but <laughs> it does seem extreme is it why can't you do something there must be a middle path like have a job 
where sometimes they'll let you end at four so you can go do that gig in goodness knows where and like I, play the long game. Yeah, I think the thing with me, though, is that, like, I think that there came a point, like, I was trying to go to school at the same time, and then about two or three years in, I just went, I don't want a life. I want to do this. This is all I want to do. And so anything that didn't lend itself to that, I was happy to let go. So I was married, that ended, I had a car, crashed that, and now I was free. I didn't have any bills, I didn't have any responsibilities. So yeah, it wasn't the most graceful way to do it. Again, I watched people do that much less painfully. I watched people have a life and then ease into it. Do you you not need a life outside of comedy? I mean, I have one now. Yeah, because otherwise, what do you talk about on stage? I mean, I have one now, but like, this is a life to me. I mean, look at us, we're in Banbury, like... Comedy becomes your life and you love comedy so you love your life. I mean like like my girlfriend's a comedian and the thing is like if we went on a holiday, we we could go on a holiday. There's something about being with another comedian that doesn't feel like you're missing out. So we could both be like, okay, no gigs. But also we'd be totally happy to be like we went to France for two weeks and had gigs. It would be like great. But I mean like yeah, so I'm, I have a life now. But I think in the beginning years, man, you're so fucking into it that – whether you like it or not, your life starts to disappear. But it's not a bad thing because you found your life. You know, you found the meaning of your life. That's what it felt like for me in the beginning. When I really got into stand-up, I was like, this is this is my life. This is everything I've ever wanted. I was totally happy. And you move to LA and you meet – when you go to a big city like that, forget about making it and all that. What really happens and what the best thing is is that there is like this Neverland sort of, of lost children who are – have all done the exact same thing as you. They've all left their lives and are just completely going for this and letting it engulf their existence. And that's a beautiful thing, man. Isn't that like, isn't that, wouldn't that be scary? Because you think, oh, God, there's so many people trying to do the same thing that I'm trying to do. Yeah, that's part of the fun. I mean, it is. Yeah, you go to LA. I mean, if you go to a place like Hollywood or New York, I mean, yeah, good God. The first thing that happens is you just realize, Jesus. I'm an even tinier grain of sand on an even bigger beach than I had known. Than Is I that why, why you jumped over to England or, or not? Did that just happen? No, England just kind of happened. Well, yeah, because there's an element of uh, Hollywood that's like, I mean, dude, you're talking about, listen to how I'm talking, right? I'm talking about not making the best business decisions. I'm obviously a more um, artistic-minded sort of like all zen. Impulsive. Right? Like, <laughs> going to LA, fed up with this life. Right, you talk about Hollywood, that's like, zero compunctions whatsoever about this is a business make money get fans however you can't like so i i i wasn't other than doing those gigs in san diego i wasn't really progressing and and i just because i like comedy so much i started getting into like other i was like what are com-? i just started going down youtube rabbit holes and you start finding all these comedians in britain and shit and i was like wow what's that all about and so i, I had all these People I liked and then it just naturally – I met somebody who was English and I was like, I got to try it. And I went back and forth for a while and then I just ended up – once I got an agent over here and she booked me like a year in advance of gigs and I, like you said, started to make a living as a comedian, I just went, what else is there? And everybody in LA was like, oh, yeah. and even knowing that they could do that, they were like, there's still that fame drug. There's that like – and that's why I don't – You've got to come to terms with that because that doesn't – you've got to sort that out because I was faced with that. It was like stay in LA, make no money, not be a comedian, but one day maybe get a big opportunity that makes you kind of a quote-unquote success, right? And then something happens or go be a stand-up, get paid for it and live that life now. And in the end of the day, I was like that's the life I wanted. That was what I wanted. So in a weird way, as much as I think, oh, I've been going a long time, I kind of made it in like five years. Because if you think about it, when I started, all I wanted to do was do stand-up, get any kind of money for it and not have to work. You know what I mean? That, that's what I wanted. Because it seems, it seems like it's better to kind of live a dream than, than have one, I think, in one way. And it's like, it seems very strange that people use, without being purist and going on about art i think it's very odd that people want to use comedy as a stepping stone to get on tv when comedy can be the most amazing fun but then to take it as part of a plan just seems like you're gonna miss out on all the fun yeah but what i'm saying is like there's like in in hollywood it's like fame there was a thing about and this is forget hollywood this is everywhere it's in britain too 
you have to come to terms with the fame monster, okay? And the 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 allure of that. What is that? Because that if you you have to ask yourself, you know, because that's the crossroad I was at. I was like, I have an opportunity to get paid and be a comic, but but be pretty much off the grid, right? Uh, no pun intended, right? The po- podcast, but then like, uh, or stay in LA, and then I was like, for what though? And then I was like, oh, it's fame to get famous to be a thing because people have a deluded idea that if they're anointed that fame, other people will then see them as worthy and they won't and you'll never feel worthy. That's how you get famous people who end up miserable because they thought fame would do that to them. As far as I can tell, I've never been famous, but as far as I can tell, that's how you end up that dude in track pants who's got all the movie posters that he's been in surrounding his room as he dies on a handful of volumes. <laughs> Cause I wonder if it's just, it just becomes like, what's the old cliche keeping up with the Joneses where uh, oh, I've been in all these movies and I'm really famous, but there's always someone more famous. And if I bumped into someone in the supermarket, they might not recognise me. So how famous am I really? There's no, there's no lid on fame, is there? You can't have enough. Well, I could be wrong, but I've always seen a division. Like I said, there's this other. It's like in particle physics, how you have the particle and the antiparticle. My antiparticle <laughs> is the guy who wants power. See, I always wanted to be great. I just wanted to be great. I respected and strived for greatness. I wanted to be a great comedian. Whereas I noticed other people seem to want, and I don't think they realize it, they want power. They want power. They Greatness is a byproduct. They just want to be good enough to get the power. And I don't know, um, but see, some sort of quest for power would probably help my career. But I don't. I don't really – you know what I mean? They quest that. They want they want prestige because they want – I don't know what they think is going to happen. I mean what, what, you're going to get seats at restaurants. I'll take that. That would be nice. I mean but at the end of the, the day, floor. what is that if, it, if you don't have the mental um, solitude? Yeah. So to me, the whole thing with LA was I, – I just basically looked at it and I went, um, I will never – I made a choice right there. I said I will never sacrifice – life experience for um you know the the hope of some sort of career gain because going because for me a guy from San Diego who like I always wanted to go to Europe and I never saw any path to do that I was like I have an opportunity to just live in Europe live in Britain work and 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 make and like the life experience of that was to me priceless and the alternative was but it's smarter to stay in LA and like just keep walking down Sunset Boulevard and get some auditions and then people. But isn't there like a middle way? Because I've seen a lot of comics, they'll they'll go on a panel show for a few series, or they'll do a something like a reality show or something on TV, and then they'll use it as a vehicle to sell bums, get bums on seats, so they can do what they actually want, which is to go back to do stand up, but at, at a higher level. Like um, there's lots of. Uh, Paul Foot went on Nevermind the Buzzcocks. He now doesn't do that anymore and does what he wants, which is touring stand-up. So it's almost like you go and do the, the, the mainstream stuff in order to, for you to do the, the more arty stuff that you actually want to do. Yeah, I mean, that's different. That's like I'm, that's like those opportunities came to him uh, on his path, mm. which is fine. I'm talking about there was a dis- there was like so you're a- on about like a, a comic who has a five-year plan kind of thing. Is that the more, more what you're on about? No, I'm just saying like um uh like priorities. Like like I said like there were people in LA who like wouldn't leave even though they had nothing going because the hope to get the thing. So they're sacrificing life experience. It's like, dude, do you want to go to Britain and like just travel and yeah. like and it's like no, I should stay in LA cuz I might get famous. And it's like that's a mistake to me because I'm I'm much more I, I guess the college they say, "Oh, don't 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 be a quitter but i guess it's not is it it's just following a different way of doing things yeah i mean it's it's about enjoying your it's like your life i mean what what's the point of life if it's just about this end result but if you go but also if you listen to yourself and you do that you know and I, that, that decision everyone was like you're crazy and, and doing things because you think you should do them not because you want to do them there's something 
crappy about having to do that. Don't ever do anything because you think you because sh- you told you should do it. I mean, I take that to the extreme. Any like I said tonight, anytime someone tells me I have to do something, I'm like, I don't think so. I think that's just a, a, a an accepted thing. You know, there's so many things that we accept, and and you just start to go, well, why? You know, people are like, well, you have to, you have to. Why do you have to do that? You don't, you don't have to. You actually don't. You don't have to. And there's a bunch of things I love. Doing like the whole thing when I canceled all my social media, that people were like, "That's suicide." My my career didn't suffer at all. If anything, I got I started getting more work. I don't know how, you know, I, maybe it's just because I was moving around the circuit more. Leaving LA, people were like, "You can't, man, you can't." Yeah, work I was, was going to bring that up, but I think if you you couldn't start without social media, if you were starting today, like I find all my open mics and all my gigs like on on facebook without it i i think if my facebook got deleted now i don't know how i'd get gigs um if you were starting now do you think you could do it still um i think you can do anything you just you have to you'll figure it out but it'd be so laborious wouldn't it if there's no you'd miss out on all the opportunities going help we need a replacement in croydon tonight if let's say you didn't want to use Facebook anymore and you're starting as a comedian, you could figure out a way to do it because you've made a choice. It's about choices, right? So you say, I don't want to go on social media because it affects my mental health. Mm. So I want to be zen. I want to be I want to be off the grid. I want to stop using electronic devices. I want to be like this organic, I don't know, it's just a hippie fucking thing. Yeah. But I also want to be a comic. You'll figure out how to do it. It's just going to be hard. You'd have to figure out... And and the world won't make it easy for you because they're all going to go, dude, we're on Facebook. But if you wanted, you could get a list of all the gigs. Look, I'm not saying it was, it's – I don't recommend it. No, and, no, no. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I think it's – I can see how you've been able to do it at this stage. But I think I, I think backing out of social media once you've had it. And it is quite – it's – I don't know. In some way, when people quit social media, on one level, it annoys me because how can it affect you that much? But at the same time, it's kind of empowering the way you've just gone – well, just because everyone does it doesn't mean I have to. Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I think it is. I mean, but also, I never used to use it. I mean, I, I'm 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 young enough to have lived through. It's not like it's a new thing for me. Like I I lived through several stages of it, and I never used any platform. It's just not who I am. Mm. And I think that because of that, it seems to work naturally for me because I'm being honest with myself. It's not like I'm dying to get on it. I never liked it. I mean, I, I it's just not me. I like I don't like think oh i need to tweet this i need to like maybe as a promotional tool i don't know maybe as a self-delusion maybe i just like going on facebook and twitter because like a part of me can just pretend to be famous maybe that's i think there's a big part of that with social Fuck media yeah everybody does that that's gross that's the fame monster mm. everybody wants to be famous and it's not ba- it's not like it's weird of course you do but you got to sort that out man yeah you can snuff that flame you know you can get it at least down to a little pilot light because, dude, when I go on it, this is what I never understood when I was on it. The amount of egregious, embarrassing self-promotion faux fame-mongering that would happen and go unaccounted for. I was like, how do you even post that and sleep at night? You know, like, smashed it, meh, like some some f- completely arrogant boast, badly couched in a like factual false, statement false yeah like, kind of like oh what an oh isn't this hotel funny that i'm staying at that the comedy club paid for because i'm doing well you know like, like wait well what like so you're pretending to talk about the hotel being haunted but you're really like posting that you're at a gig doing this hotel thing and 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 all uh getting getting paid work and shit yeah this is one of these things i agree with it in principle but in practice it's all just part of a game isn't it to get more bums on seats and it's just another way you can spin things it's like misquoting reviews slightly so maybe someone else will buy a ticket isn't it just part of that game yeah and i think that i don't know there's like a level of honesty i think that i like to uphold between people that sounds like i'm being oh like so self-righteous but i'm just saying like I can't self-promote without being aware that I'm self-promoting and calling attention to the self-promotion. So it's like I can't just go, awesome gig tonight, without also writing like... So would you not it, put up a poster saying, come to my show? No, I do that because that's just like, hey, I'm here, come if you want. But isn't that the same kind of thing? And it, Isn't that just being famous quote? No, that's like saying, hey, I'm doing a gig. If you're into it, come on down. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, you got to know where it is, but it's not like going... 
you know, uh, taking a photo of yourself with a celebrity and I don't know. I think it sucks. Like, dude, maybe I'm just neurotic, but I can physically feel the energy of an experience being sucked out of it if I take the time to then turn it into content. See, this is the problem I've noticed. Mm. My brother's got a little kid, right? And I was talking to him and he goes, I'm going to have a YouTube channel and I'm going to sell all this merchandise. And I went, well, there it is. That's what's happening now. I remember you saying this on another podcast. Who, who are you talking to? Jay Handley. Uh, yeah, 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 did I? Yeah. Yeah, I, because and I was thinking about that and I was thinking, if that kid, what, what if that kid had said, I think, wouldn't it be so much nice if that kid said, oh, I want to make really nice videos and show them people. I want to make interesting films rather than, because he just went from, he, the, it sounds like the kid has skipped the fun, creative bit of making a video to just gone to the blooming merchandise. Yeah. And surely the only point of merch is so you can afford to do more cool stuff and he's just gone from a to c the thing that i was thinking is i'm gonna say this it's not necessarily that he's like oh no creativity he may still be creative but what that showed me was that he was talking about the creativity but with a unaware but with a blend of business like business you know what i'm saying Everything these days, and we're told like it's a good thing. There's no, there's a blurred line between art and business now. Everything is about, everything is content. Everything is like, everything has to be monetized. Everything's got a price tag. Every experience you have is content for your Instagram feed. Everything you make has to be packaged in a certain way in order to sell it right. And you're applauded for that. You've got to do it. You got to get it out to your fans and you got to do that. So we are expected to be businessmen now. Yeah. You know what I mean? And people see no line between it. It's like, it's good business. People talk about it. I was watching a documentary of these rappers and they talk about being businessmen. I'm a businessman. I'm a businessman. I'm not a businessman. I'm a fucking artist. Let the businessmen be businessmen. There is no art to business, by the way. All this Steve Jobs shit where they try to wrap it up like, oh, he's such a visionary. That's where the line started to get blurred and it became like um, – I mean I'm not saying – I'm not saying that there's not some sort of like necessity to it. But I just – people need to be aware of the – mix of it you, you know what i mean yeah because I, I guess if you if sometimes you just got to make stuff because it's art not just because you get a monetary return because monetary is only one sort of money is only one sort of value yeah or just divide or just seeing a delineation between it but i just thought it was interesting like he was saying i'm gonna have merch so it's like at his age, what's being fed to him... And what's and he, validating his art, the fact he can sell merch off the back of it, not the fact it's art. Well, I'm just saying he's obviously seeing the two. He's a kid, so he's impressionable. And I'm not saying that him, he's like bad. I'm saying by showing... Because look, when you're a kid, I obviously grew out of stuff, you know? You, you develop principles and integrity when you're older. So as a kid, though, you're just spitting what's being fed to you. Obviously, what's being shown to him is a blend of business and art. So he he hasn't grown up enough to, if he chooses to, to see the difference. Do you know what I mean? So because that's the way everything is packaged now. I think yeah, I think it has become very extreme in in the case of, of like art and business kind of merging. But hasn't it always been like that? You'd never have com like comedy shows. They are a gimmick to sell beer. Surely that's why they're there there aren't there aren't comedy there aren't many comedy clubs that are just there for the sake of art uh yeah oh i mean yeah the blend of art and business has been around forever but i mean i would say arguably with comedy clubs to bring it back to what we were talking about in the beginning the comic has always naturally come to loggerheads with the comedy club because that's the great that's that's the great battle between the comedian and comedy club is the comedian has to make concessions because the comedy club wants to sell booze. And that's where the alternative movement came from, you know, where people went, fuck these comedy clubs, man. Let's just go do this. Let's just go do this without an aim to sell drinks, without all this criteria we have to go under. So I think art – what I'm saying is to me, I can't get rid of the fact that art and business are natural nemesis. And what I'm hearing now is that people are going, no, 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 they're friends. They exist together. And I'm just not – but the truth is, you're making a living off art, though, aren't you? So you're a businessman in that respect. I'm not saying business isn't a necessity, mm. but I think you should view it as a. Uh, it's about having. I was going to say it's a necessary evil, <laughs> yeah. but in a way, it is. It is. It's not like a beautiful, awesome thing that is an art in itself. You know what I mean? It's a. It and I think that I trust someone more who's had to 
figure out the business side, come to terms with it, make peace, and then push his art through it in an interesting way rather than someone who just started thinking business is awesome and here we go, baby, because the art's going to be diluted to me. Someone like Stuart Lee, it's like he... They show you the compromise in a way. Yes. It's like I can tell, you know, he's... There was a great many years of uh, of creation, and then the the um, the conduit is the business, and and they almost have to figure out, like like you said, with posting like posting a poster on social media, like that. You just have to figure out at some point, like you can have a piece of art, but you got to hang it on a wall somewhere. I, I don't know, man. Yeah. Does that, does that make you made me, yeah, but you, you made me think of something. The small thing that really annoys me is the the misuse of the term creative. You call marketing execs creative. That's what I'm saying. I mean, they've got a talent. It's a skill. But if you ask them to write a poem or do a picture, they've probably never done that in their life. Art is about intent, okay? It's about the passion behind it. Anything can be art. If someone made this coffee cup with like – they love coffee cups and they just made it with so much heart and blood and sweat and tears and it's all they ever want to do and they painstakingly made it. That coffee cup's a piece of art because you can feel what's behind it. Whereas this coffee cup is made solely and deadly with the purpose of moving hot liquid for this corporation into my mouth. Yeah, so that's, what, it, that's what you get from it, right? That's why when Marcel Duchamp hangs a urinal on a wall, it became art. Not because it was on the wall, but because I can feel some vibe coming from that. He put that on the wall. He's, bug- he's buggered art though, hasn't he? He's made art really silly. I, th- I think he proved a very, very good point, but it's opened the floodgates for like, you wander around, it, it's like going off on a tangent here, but walking around the Tate Modern now, yeah. I see, I'm no, I mean, I'm no art expert, I haven't studied art, I, I don't do art other than stand-up, but it seems like, it seems to be a game of creative piss-taking and the, the, the purity of making something... Yeah, I'll be uh, honest do, with you. Do, do you see what I mean? Yes, I think the, yes, there's an element of that. There's still intent behind it, but I'll be honest with you, when I walk around the Tate Modern, I don't like the intent. I, can I feel, feel I'm being sneered at. They're going to see. Let's see how much crap we can put in this room, um, and they still go. Oh, yes, isn't this artistic? Yeah, but I think they've missed the point because they're taking the Duchamp thing and going like, "Yeah, doesn't this bug you?" And it's like to me, that's not what Duchamp was. Duchamp was like he put. Um, by the way, I think I'm butchering that Duchamp, but like, I, I think it's Duchamp, but I could be saying it wrong. I, I'm I dyslexic. Just, you're say, American. Yeah, like, this is never going to work. I say carte blanche and shit. Like, <laughs> Americans just butcher shit, right? Like that's my raisin d'etre. That's my raisin debtor. But like, uh, like his whole thing was when he put something on the wall, there was like an element of like, uh, fuck off behind it that when I walk around the Tate now, I just, I, I can hear like some German guy going, isn't it silly? It's a chair. And I'm like, you're missing the point, man, because you've just put that there to be annoying. That's almost as dead to me as just some piece of corporate art. Because he was kicking against the very ornate formulaic style of art and it was well, reactionary, whereas like now it's just that everyone's playing a game of let's put silly things in rooms. Yeah, that, and, and to me, I feel the triviality of that intent behind it. So it's like the thing – I remember I watched this TED Talk once. And um, I was confused about my style of comedy because I was like, I don't really do anything up there. You know, like you watched an hour today and people go, what was that? He didn't say anything. He just mucked about. But I realized he, there was a girl uh, um, who – there was a four-year-old girl who was doing replicas of Jackson Pollock's and they were selling for like hundreds of thousands of pounds. And you can look this TED Talk up. It's called like – it's about what is art, meaning of art. It's one of the best I've ever seen. They found out that her dad was helping her – paint so her paintings went to zero worth they're just garbage and what this guy deduced from that was that art what you're buying into is like i said the passion behind it it doesn't matter of the technical ability it doesn't matter at all about that it's what's behind it it's the energy like um john cage is a piano player and he has a track on itunes that's just total silence because he was experimenting with silence so he goes on to play the piano, sits there. See, it's that's for- taken the mick as far as I'm concerned. That's weird. But the thing is, it's not for me because... That sounds like the sort of stuff we were railing against in the Tate Modern a moment ago. But it's not because he was the first guy to do something like that. Right. And anytime so he was Duchamp in This is what I'm respect. saying. Yeah. When something becomes as stuffy 
as classical music did, something like that is needed to say, hey, you can do whatever you want. Don't forget that. So when I go on stage and I just riff, you you could you could look at it and go, oh, he's not. But to me, that's why I've called my my show this year is called Love Song for the Viciously Ambitious. And the whole point of the show is that like, as, as this sounds pretty arrogant, but it's like I think like if you're taking everything really seriously and you're one of those people questing for power, you need a show like that to just go and go. Hey, also, there's no rules. You can literally do whatever you want. So to me, going on stage and having zero point riffing about whatever I want and playing around is a Jackson Pollock splash on a on a painting. It's like you look at it, and you go. There's no technical ability there. He's not doing setups. He's not doing punchlines. But it's like the energy behind it. It's about the intent. It's about the passion. That's what you're responding to, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. So what I'm saying was with like marketing and all that stuff is um, it, it has happened. But a lot of times if the intent – You've got to be aware of the contradiction of business, I guess. Yeah, then. because if I smell that the intent is to sell or the intent is anything other than your – Emotional expression is dead to me. And I can smell it and you can feel it as an audience. So when someone ends their comedy set by going, follow me on Twitter, I feel like you've just cut the nuts off it. Because I just go, oh, man, you've left the gig now. You've taken a flying saucer out of emotional expression and you've entered into like the realm of your mind that thinks about bills and, and, and finance and mortgages. Yeah, no, I, I don't like that for another reason, just because it breaks the flow of a comedy set. And also, if a punter is that impressed by the comic that they'll remember their name, exactly. they'll find them after and then you can give them a business card. And I, I think that means so much more. I believe that. I, I don't know. I don't know what the site that like, I'd love to know on average comics that say, follow me on Twitter, how many people actually will get their phone out and, and, and do it. Um, I'd, I'd like to know that. Um, are you well, gonna, mm. this is uh, the great battle in me. Because I'm not totally convinced that that doesn't work. It might. So there you go. That's always happening inside of me is business tactics clearly are proven to work, man. You look at like manufacturing, all the, I mean, they clearly work. So it's like, but I side more with what you said. I feel like blow it out of the water, have you're if you want to have social media great i'm not against it like for i'd feel a bit arrogant saying it i mean maybe if i was a more famous comic i'd think i could get away with it but but i almost feel like it's a good way to get yourself as good as you have to be like get so good that you don't have to tell them to follow you they're fucking following you after so just do that blow it out of the water and you gotta build an audience you gotta build an audience bit by bit haven't you i guess it's uh you're not gonna miss your train to birmingham are you no what time is it it's four o'clock uh so I don't want no, to but I was, I was just thinking we've probably... Yeah, no. Probably would it, would it be ironic if you plugged your website? <laughs> no, I don't mind doing that. See, I don't mind plugging the website because this is like, this is a sit-down conversation. Yeah, if you go to russellix.co.uk, sign the mailing list. Anyway. Awesome. No, this has been wicked. Thank you Thank very you much, much, man. So anyway, I am a total recluse and I'll be in a cave near you. So look for no posters or promotion whatsoever. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast with Rodders. That was Russell Hicks, the longest interview I've done on this podcast to date. But I reckon it was worth every minute. You can't have short conversations with Russell. It just doesn't happen. You just end up talking about this and that and everything. And we'd probably still be there now uh, debating the evils of Facebook and Twitter had he not had to get on the train to Birmingham to do a gig. I urge you go check out his website, russellhicks.co.uk, and have a listen to his podcast. It's called Off the Grid. It keeps me coming while I'm travelling up and down to gigs and to work and things. Uh, Well worth a listen. Uh, Right, a couple of odds and ends to tidy up. I'm going to tell you what's coming up at the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club this month. Our next show is on Thursday the 12th, so in a couple of days' time. Get your tickets now. Facebook.com forward slash Stand and Deliver Comedy Night. The headliner is Paul McCaffrey. He's been seen on Russell Howard's Good News and all sorts of other TV programmes. It's absolutely incredible. And it's hosted by Matt Hudson, a musical comic who's played the club before and is excellent and he's also been featured on Soccer AM as well and has a whole lineup of great support acts including Lucas Dolson, Fred Ferenczi and Sean Doty. And it's going to be great fun. And also we're doing a very special one-off show on Saturday the 21st. It's Stand and Delivers Saturday Special. It's a slightly different format to the usual Thursday night show. 
It's uh, headlined by Simon Kane, who will be performing his hour-long Edinburgh Fringe show, Sex, Drugs and Other Things I Never Do. Uh, Simon Kane's a fantastic act. He's headlined the club before, and is fa- he's probably the comedian that I- I've known the longest on the circuit. I saw his Edinburgh show last year, and it-, it was fantastic, so I can't wait to see what he's done with this one. And I will be emceeing slash hosting the night and there's also support from Fiona Ridgewell and Morgan Reese. Uh, so it's, it's an absolutely stellar lineup and it's on a Saturday night. Uh, tickets available right now, go book them. Two very, very different shows, so you could go to both of them. Now, before I go, I'm going to just rattle through some of the highlights from my own gig diary, uh, just in case uh, you've liked some of my preamble and postamble and think, well, I'd like to see him say some more stuff only in person. On Saturday, July the 21st, as I just mentioned, I'm emceeing the Standard Deliver Comedy Club's Saturday special. That's going to be great fun. And then on Thursday, July the 19th, I'm headlining White Heart Comedy at the White Heart in Stoke Newington. And full lineup is well there for you to watch. And let's fast forward a couple of weeks now. Uh, I've got a big announcement. I will be going to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, the mecca of comedy that it is. In fact, I think this announcement deserves an over the top drum roll. I can reveal to you that. On the 20th of August until the 26th of August, I will be running my show called Mirth in the Morning every morning that week at 10 past 11 in the loft at the Counting House. It's going to be great fun. I know 10 past 11 is the crack of dawn for Edinburgh, but it'll be worth setting your alarm for. It will set you up nicely for the re- for the rest of the day. It's me hosting and some of my favourite acts, uh, and it's a different lineup every day. I've got some real surprises, some amazing things booked. Not going to tell you uh, just yet uh, but uh, I can't wait to reveal to you who some of these people are it's going to be very very exciting uh, more information on that and all the other gigs I just mentioned go to rodders.com r-h-o-d-d-e-r-s.com all the gigs and more are listed there and also go uh, buy tickets for the stand and deliver comedy club facebook.com forward slash stand and deliver comedy night click the big blue book now button to book your tickets for the next couple of shows uh, right that's pretty much it thanks very much for uh, listening this is Rodders signing out for the Stand and Deliver comedy podcast episode 7 episode 7